the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. I was introduced to J.R.R. Tolkien in seventh grade. This was the project that the seventh grade class of St. Catherine of Siena participated in each year. The whole school knew it. Students read The Hobbits and then were tasked with creating their own version of Smog, the villainous dragon. You could make a diorama, a clay sculpture, whatever, but the goal was to allow the world of Tolkien's Middle-earth to inspire in you a little bit of creativity. I hope that today's conversation does much the same for you. My guests are Dr. William Fliss and Dr. Sarah Schaefer. They are the co-curators of the J.R.R. Tolkien, The Art of the Manuscript exhibition at Marquette University. Bill is the curator of Marquette's Tolkien Collection, and Sarah is assistant professor of art history at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Both are big fans of Tolkien and his work. The exhibition, as you'll hear, is a really exciting thing. On display are manuscripts that Tolkien himself created. But these aren't just pieces of paper with his draft of the Fellowship of the Ring. These manuscripts are part of his world of Middle-earth actual pieces of the lore crafted by his own hand, bearing his own beautiful calligraphy. The exhibit is running from August 19th through December 23rd, 2022. Tickets are on sale now. I've included a number of helpful links below, both for those interested in visiting and for those just interested in learning more. Now, here is my conversation with Bill Fliss and Sarah Schaefer. Sarah Schaefer, Bill Fliss, welcome to AMDG. We're so glad to have you with us today. Because you guys are um, the co-curators of the J.R.R. Tolkien, The Art of the Manuscript exhibit, which is currently at Marquette University, correct? That's correct, at the Hagerty Museum on Marquette's campus. Awesome. Um, so why don't you tell us, just to start, tell us a little bit about what is this exhibit? What what should folks know about Tolkien um, uh, and this exhibit uh, to kind of frame our conversation today? Bill, why don't we start with you? Okay, well, I, many of your listeners probably know something about Tolkien. He's, he's most remembered as the author in popular culture, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, but he was so much uh, more than that. Uh, in a fascinating life, he was... Uh, he was an orphan. He was a, a survivor of the Great War. He was a Catholic. He was um, a philologist, an academic. Um, so his creative writing that he's most remembered for really was his, his hobby on the side. And uh, he was also very much a, a producer of manuscripts, um, both in terms of producing lots of manuscripts in the course of writing his 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 fictional pieces, and also uh, manuscripts that he created within the stories of, of, the, of the Lord of the Rings in particular, where their manuscripts appear in the story as objects that, that characters interact with. And so uh, we gravitated towards this idea of the manuscript as we were um, thinking about what we would make the theme for this exhibition. Do you want to add anything to that, Sarah? Yeah, maybe just um, I'll give an example. Um, so listeners who are familiar with The Lord of the Rings, either uh, from reading the books or from seeing any number of adaptations, most famously the Peter Jackson uh, film adaptations, um, might be familiar with an object in the story that's not described as such 
in those adaptations or even in the book, but uh, it's the Book of Mazurbul. So this is the chronicle that when the uh, when the Fellowship of the Ring is traveling through the mines of Moria, they discover this chronicle, this dwarf chronicle that helps them understand what happened when Balin, um, the dwarf, and a f- group of followers tried to repopulate the mines. And so that manuscript, so this is a handwritten manuscript within the Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien actually created these really elaborate, beautiful paintings of uh, what we would call facsimile pages of the book of, of Mazarbul. So um, these are, are pages that are made to look like very old degraded manuscripts. They look like they have like blood stains. He um, uh, used his pipe to kind of burn the edges. The script that's written on it is both in um, the runic script and also uh, the the elvish tengwar. And they're just these really beautiful objects that he created in the hopes that they would be included in the published Lord of the Rings. And because of cost constraints, they weren't um, ultimately included there. But so there we have a handwritten manuscript that has a major function in the story. And Tolkien also created, in, while he was developing these pages, these artistic works, he did different draft versions of it. And those are actually in uh, Marquette's collection. So, and Bill can speak a little bit more later about um, the collection of manuscripts at Marquette. Um, but so with the, with the book of Mazarbol and its presence in the exhibition, we have kind of two different ideas of manuscripts coming to play in here. So we have a manuscript that is an actual handwritten manuscript within the story of the Lord of the Rings, but we also have his own manuscript kind of draft versions of creating that, um, of creating this, this artifact, this fictional artifact. And it's those two ideas of the manuscript, both as a handwritten object um, and, and the, the book of Mazarbul is, is very um, reminiscent visually of the kind of medieval manuscripts that he studied as a philologist. So we have that layer, but then also manuscripts as kind of working draft versions of, of something that would ostensibly be, be printed la- later. So that's just a good example of an object or a set of objects in the exhibition that kind of speak to those two different ideas of manuscripts that we're exploring. That's so cool. And it's um, it's so like specific and really in the weeds of, of both Tolkien as a storyteller, but also the kinds of story he's creating. So I wonder, you know, sorry, maybe you can even um, elaborate further on this. Like, this is such a different, uh, you know, concept as far as I think if we think about like the telling of stories, you know, we think an author sits in a room, writes a story, sends it to a publisher, and that's that. But that's not at all what, what you're describing here. So what what do you hope you know, people come away from this experience of this of this manuscript on on exhibition, right? What do you hope people come away with, with a new understanding of of Tolkien the storyteller and 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 how he did his work? Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot that I hope people. I think there are a lot of things that one could take away from the exhibition. Um, I mean, first and foremost, I'll say yes. Like my description of the Book of Mazarbul is more in the weeds than um, a casual Tolkien fan might might um, kind of latch onto. But there's plenty in the exhibition. I mean, there's over 140 objects. So there's plenty in the exhibition that if you've only seen the film adaptations or maybe read the books one time that will be familiar to you and that you can draw a lot from. Um, I mean, one of the things that just talking to some of our colleagues who were part of the the, the process of, of creating the exhibition, kind of hearing their takeaways and, and other people who've come through the exhibition is 
both a, a kind of sense of awe at just the sheer amount of material that he created and developed. And it's one of those things like Bill and I have this experience when talking to more casual fans of like, they'll ask a question and it's like, we could go on talking about how he formulated the responses to these kinds of questions for half, you know, half an hour or more. And people who are, have spent even more time than we have on this material could go even longer. And so it's people, I think, You'll go into that exhibition, even if you are familiar with the depth of the world that he created, there's way more than even someone who has a great familiarity with that material could even fathom. I mean, that was kind of one of my big takeaways in doing research. I, you know, had a sense of how um, complex and and um, and deep the secondary world that he created was, but I was even still surprised at, at the, the layers of it as I was going through. Um, so... There's that. And then also, yeah, there's something just wonderful about seeing this author who goes through the same struggles as any writer does in writing any kind of project. You know, sometimes there's a chapter or a story or an element that comes fairly quickly and you don't see a lot of of um, editing and and. Uh, greater development and and nixing certain things and adding certain th th things in and then you see elements where he went through seven and eight drafts of it and this is handwritten material so we're used to being able to like track changes and stuff in, in word and you know these are going across thousands and thousands of, of pages so yeah I mean I think even if you're not really a Tolkien fan if you're going with uh, you know a friend or a family member who is and you're not so much just seeing the amount of work that this person dedicated to this material over decades and decades is, is really kind of inspiring and, and it, it's easy to get awestruck by it. And I think people who are writers or who aspire to be writers will find some solace in this exhibition in that they realize that, you know, Tolkien, occasionally he got it right from the get-go. He was really in the zone when he was writing a particular scene or particular chapter. But a lot of the time, especially early in The Lord of the Rings, he really was, uh, he, he really had to work at it multiple, multiple times. Uh, I sometimes joke that he's like the pat patron saint of revision, you know, <laughs> teaching people to just keep revising. Because honestly, uh, the more he revised in some cases, the better it got. Some of his early drafts had, had he just run with them, uh, they're pretty terrible. You can see, for instance, like some of the early names of characters. It's like, oh, thank God his name changed from Bingo, you know, or Marmaduke. Like, you know. Oh, man, I wish we had the, you know, the legend of the hobbits of uh, Marmaduke there. But um, that, no, it, I mean, it's, it, it, this, is, this is really consoling, I think, to hear as, as for anyone who's engaging in any sort of creative endeavors, you know, that even, uh, you know, Tolkien in his, you know, this gigantic tome, we see such a, you know, beautiful end product that, you know, it doesn't start that way. Um, I, I wonder if you guys, you, you each seem to have a, a deep love um, for Tolkien and, and the works he's created. So maybe you can give us um, just a little bit of information, background into how you got involved uh, with Tolkien and, and particularly how you ended up co-curating uh, this particular exhibition. Bill, why don't we start with you? Sure. Well, um, my, my memory of Tolkien goes back to the elder days before the Peter Jackson film. Although I, I think Sarah knew of, knew of Tolkien before then, but I think the movies were more meaningful to her. But I had You're discovered calling it. me out as not a purist, I, even before I've had a chance to defend myself. I know. Myself. Wow. wow. <laughs> right under the bus there. <laughs> no. Sarah and I, we worked so well and so closely together, we, we tease each other with impunity. So... <laughs> but I we uh, I, I read Tolkien as an adolescent and uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and uh, and then when I was I think fourteen I read The Silmarillion and just fell in love with that. So I just 
took in a lot of his legendarium. And uh, I actually came to Marquette quite a while ago now in 2003, but I didn't come here to work on Tolkien. I was working on other collections. But then one thing led to another, and the person who had been curating the, the, the Tolkien collection here left for a job elsewhere, and then I settled into the position. And so I was, I was in good shape in that I knew the legendarium very well. I knew the stories very well. I didn't know the collection here as well, and, and that's what I've had to spend the last several years learning about as we go. And um, it's been fun to be able to put on this exhibition now after so many years of learning uh, about the collection. Um, so that's my, my basic background. Um, I don't know, do you want to jump in, Sarah? Yeah, defend myself a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I mean, I, I always kind of was aware of Tolkien because it, uh, my dad was a big fan growing up. So I very frequently, you know, his hardbound copy of a three volume set of Lord of the Rings was on his nightstand. He usually read it once a year or every other year growing up. So I tried reading it in high school and just kind of didn't really get into it. Um, and it really was honestly seeing the Peter Jackson films when I was a freshman in college that, um, uh, seeing Fellowship of the Ring that turned me around. I think I read them all uh, twice between, or read the entire Lord of the Rings twice between Fellowship coming out in Two Towers. Um, so, uh, but yeah, like I said, in 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 uh, the, the purists, the old guard, you know, uh, we I worry about. Uh, there's always the concern that they're going to look down on you for uh, for being a movie fan. But I I, I will steadfastly. Um, uh, you know, uh, justify, self-justify my, my love of the film. I still think they're brilliant films, um, the, the Lord of the Rings adaptations. But yeah, that, that was that was sort of my, my entry point. And um, yeah. I like the yeah. movies too. I, th I think they're, they're brilliant. I was very entertained by them, definitely. <laughs> At least the Lord of the Rings ones, not the Hobbit ones. I didn't really care for those. I've been, care I've been careful to say the Lord of the Rings adaptations. Right. <laughs> You mean you don't like the uh, the elven chase down the river or oh, jumping over barrels and all that insanity? You didn't like that? <laughs> no. But in terms of how the exhibition happened and how we connected up for this, uh, uh, basically, in the, in the as many of your listeners might know, in the last few years, especially immediately preceding the pandemic, there were uh, three major Tolkien exhibitions that were happening in 2018. There was one at Oxford, J.R. Tolkien, maker of Middle Earth. And then uh, either later that or early the following year in 19, um, there was a version of that same show that was at the Morgan Museum in uh, New York City. And then uh, later in 2019, um, they were very lucky that the, the exhibition closed just before the pandemic hit. Um, but they had a, a, a spectacular exhibition at the French National Library in Paris. Uh, and so um, people from Marquette uh, attended these showings and um, the the director of the Haggerty Museum on campus and the dean of the library uh, decided that Marquette should do a Tolkien exhibition. And so um, they turned to me to, to sort of help make this happen, given my understanding of the collection and, and then the connections I had with with places like the Bodleian in, in, in uh, Oxford University and with the Tolkien estate. And um, I've, I'm, I'm not a museum professional. I'm an archivist. It's a, it's a different kind of profession. I've never curated a, an exhibition in my life. I have the subject knowledge about Tolkien and some ideas on how it might be presented, but uh, it was clear I needed to partner with somebody to pull this off. And, um, and that's how Sarah entered the picture. Maybe Sarah, you can take over and kind of explain how you, how we, how we linked up. 
Yeah, I mean, when I moved to Milwaukee, I was already aware of the manuscript collection, the the Tolkien manuscripts at Marquette. So uh, after I'd been here a couple of years, I went to one of the um, public viewings that Bill does periodically showing some of the highlights of the manuscript collection. So that's when we first met. And then uh, it was through a number of chance encounters and random conversations that um, led me to learn that there was this this exhibition that was percolating um, that would be mounted or in theory mounted at the at the Haggerty Museum at Marquette. And I had done some work with them a, a few years earlier on a, a much smaller exhibition. So I was kind of a known entity to them. And um, Bill and I, when we when we met for the first time and started kind of throwing ideas around, there was kind of an immediate synergy. I mean, I think I've heard Bill say this, so I know it's true. Like, yeah, we kind of got along when we first met years before. So when we met to start talking about this project, there was already, I think, a good working relationship that just continued through the the entirety of the exhibition. Um, but yeah, I often reflect on the fact that if I weren't an art historian who happened to live in Milwaukee, who happened to be a Tolkien fan, you know, this this opportunity would have never come my way. So it's, and it's helpful to kind of keep some humility, um, ha- have some humility to, to that, um, to those facts. So, so that's the trick for any, um, anyone who wants to co-create such an exhibit in the future is to become an art historian, move to Milwaukee, demonstrate, <laughs> right? So that's now they know the, the trick. You know, so obviously you guys are, are, are pros. I mean, you, you have a vast knowledge of the material. You have a vast knowledge of how, to, of, of everything kind of it takes to, to put on this exhibition. I wonder if anything surprised you. Um, you know, I, I know that usually diving back into any sort of, you know, body of knowledge, you're going to learn something new, right? Um, is that the case for you guys? Did, you know, did, did something you know, um, appear in a new light uh, through this through this project, Sarah? I mean, I'm I'm still learning from Bill. Every every time I hear him talk about objects in the exhibition, I learn something new. So um, that that's always a treat. Uh, one of the things, and this kind of ties back to what I was saying before. So, and and uh, to give a little insight of into what is actually in the exhibition. So, I said we've got over 140 objects, and about three dozen of those, or a little more than three dozen, actually come from the Bodleian Library, uh, which is the other main repository of of Tolkien's manuscripts, the Bodleian Library at Oxford. Um, and early on, it, so I came onto the project in, in January 2020, and at that point we were still, the plan was still for um, Bill and I to travel to the Bodleian to look at some of their holdings in person and, and make determinations on um, if there were objects we wanted to request to borrow for this exhibition. Now, um, you know, this was January 2020 and everything shut down a couple months later, so that uh, that visit didn't happen, but we were really fortunate in that the um, archivist at the Bodleian, the Tolkien archivist, uh, Catherine McElwain, very generously offered to do virtual viewing, viewings of some of their archival materials there so we could at least get a sense of, of what was there. And for me, the thing that surprised me the most was was during those during those viewings and we were looking um we spent a lot of time looking at his academic papers so things that aren't directly related to the lord of the rings or the broader legendarium and 
again, just knowing how much depth or even having just a, a fraction of a sense of the depth of his secondary world, and then seeing the dedication to his research and teaching that comes through those academic papers and some of those we include in the exhibition. Um, and if you can't get to the exhibition, everything is reproduced in our exhibition catalog. And maybe we'll come back to that later. But, you know, just seeing, the, the, again, the, the dedication, the devotion to uh, to excellence in his scholarship, in his teaching, in addition to this legendarium that is so captivating. Like, that was really, I, I, I mean, surprising, but surprising in, like, the best possible way. Like, it made me appreciate him so much more than I already did. Yeah, yeah Phil? For me, uh, one of the surprises came, I think, when we actually laid out the exhibition and I was walking through it. I mean, it is different when you, when you consider the pieces just individually in your mind and have them on a list and maybe a printout. But when you actually see them in the space and you're walking through it, sometimes you real things come to you that wouldn't otherwise. And um, one of the sections we have <clears throat> deals a lot with his his uh, calligraphy, his handwriting. His, it, it's, it's, his writing ability was just a it's a work of art. And so we have a variety of different scripts and styles he's writing in um, and uh, different things he's doing. And, and he was a doodler. And so we, 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 we selected a number of pieces where he's doodling um, because he would oftentimes, if he's starting a new nib on his pen, he would maybe doodle to kind of get the ink going. Or when he was thinking, he would sit there and, and just sort of doodle. And uh, one of the things that struck me, a couple things, one is the number of tie-ins that when he's, especially when he's writing The Lord of the Rings around that era, um, the number of um, uh, references to the Second World War that that was that that show up in the doodles, and then also uh, his Catholicism as well, his his religious belief, which we can talk more about. But both of those come through in the doodlings that he's doing, and I didn't really notice that till they were kind of all up there walking around, thinking these are the sorts of things that were on his mind uh, while he was while he was working. Very cool. It's cool to get that like deep insight into what. Uh, you know, yeah, what someone's thinking as they're as they're in the act of this creative, you know, this creative moment. Um, you know, you, we've we've hinted at some of the stu uh, the, the different pieces that are on on uh, exhibition. I wonder if you each might pick one um, that you think is is really worth describing in in some detail and 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 really kind of drop the listener uh into the into the scene there i imagine most of our listeners won't be able to to come to marquette so so imagine you're speaking to someone who who is really have to picture it in their mind's eye bill you want to start i'm um, sure uh so this actually jumps off of what i was just talking about with his calligraphic abilities and his script i mean he studied medieval manuscripts he he was a accomplished calligrapher and so there's a piece in the exhibition where he's, uh, it, if you just glance at it in the case, you swear it's a medieval manuscript. It's so beautifully written and colored. And, uh, but it's actually, he's just sort of, he, he's actually writing out a prayer. And uh, it's the, uh, in the old Latin mass, the Gloria, you know, which appears in the mass after the penitential rite and before the collect. Uh, it was a, it was clearly a, a prayer that Tolkien liked a lot. And so he, he writes this prayer out from start to finish. But as he goes along the way, as he's moving down the paper, he changes to a different script style. In like four, so there are four different script styles that appear in the course of writing it out. And um, it's really neat to see um, his devotion, but also his, um, uh, his, just his understanding of different scripts and how they could use and how, how they could be used and how they look. Yeah, Sarah? Mine also ties to 
what I was saying before, which is uh, a piece that's in the first section of the exhibition. Um, and I guess it's kind of cheating. It's kind of two pieces, but uh, as we were going through his academic papers, we came across these pages and pages of different versions of charts documenting vowel changes in Anglo-Saxon. So that was um, the, the old English, the, the language that uh, he was most sort of has been most associated with in his in his academic work and, and works like Beowulf. Um, but these are charts tracing vowel changes across different manuscripts. So the um, the Vespasian Psalter and Ankrin Vissa, like and, and these are, uh, one of them is handwritten, a handwritten chart, and one is um, handwritten and has typescript, so you can see him using, you know, his typewriter that had an Anglo-Saxon, had Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Saxon keys on it. And again, this is just one of those places that, where you see that same dedication to precision and, um, and detail uh, that comes through his academic work, um, as well as his, his creative work. So that's the thing that, and I mean, I have other, there are other things that I think might trump that, those sets of objects in terms of my personal favorites, but, um, some of my personal favorites are things that have been reproduced before that, um, have, are in other exhibition catalogs and other Tolkien works. So this is one that hasn't been published before, um, and that I think, to me, really gives insight into his working life, um, his kind of day to day life, as well as as that creative output. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the personal favorite stuff, too. I, I would love to hear kind of what what are you thinking of when you say this is something that just really moves you as an individual going to this exhibition? I mean, his his drawing of a coiled or watercolor of a coiled dragon, which um, is is another one of those things that's been reproduced a fair amount. Um, there is the posthumously published uh, his prose translation of Beowulf. This was something that he uh, kind of played around with from early on in his career. Um, and again, was published much long after his death in 2014, I believe. Um, it is just, it's a beautiful work of watercolor. And he was someone who was very humble and, and didn't necessarily tout his artistic abilities, but his adeptness with with watercolor in the creation of the scales of the dragon and the way the dragon um kind of mimics elements of medieval manuscript illumination so we see a lot of different threads that we talk about in the exhibition in that in that actual watercolor it comes right after a whole case that's kind of dedicated to beowulf so um and it's just one like I happened to be there when the the Bodleian couriers were pulling it out of the crate, and it's just you know it's like I walked in when they were pulling that out, and it's something that I'd seen before in in the previous exhibitions, but just that moment of of like oh it does look much better in person, it looks even better in person than it does in reproduction. So that was um, that's that's in terms of the visual aspects or his visual production, that's my favorite one. Yeah. Bill, do you have something that kind of just strikes you personally when you go into the uh, to see the exhibit? Well, as I mentioned before, I, I read the, the Silmarillion uh, when I was 14, so I've always been a big fan of that for a long time now. And uh, uh, I was really happy that we were able to include in the last section of the exhibition, before you exit the, the exhibition space, uh, a wall of heraldry. Um, Tolkien, around 1960 or so, he set about creating emblems and heraldic emblems for many of the characters in his legendarium. And so there are several of them that we were able to borrow from the Bodleian's holdings and, and have on, 
on display. So, um, you know, for fans out there who know who Fingolfin or Finarfin or Finrod or Gilgalad, who, who those people are, Luthien, Idril, uh, those are, you know, their emblems, the originals that he did um, are there on the wall that you can see. And it's just a delight to bring them, to have, be able to bring them from um, the Bodleian here um, to Milwaukee. It was, it was, it was kind of a, uh, a life's dream in a way to bring those here. Yeah. And wow, a lot of awesome. those, and a lot of those characters will come up in the rings of power show. So, yeah, well, let's, let's, uh, we're going to get to that. I, I do want to hear you guys, uh, your reflections on that. Um, but, but before we do, do there's two other things I, w- I want to talk about. And we've, we've hinted at this. I think so often many people think of Tolkien, they think of middle earth, you know, Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit, all the, you know, Silmarillion. Um, uh, but as you've been, hinting at right he he's he's worked on a number of other things that um that, that that's important right to to the development of our kind of understanding of of, of literature and, and so much so much more and also right he was a, a very serious catholic and that influenced his work as well so can you can you both share some reflections on um again how this exhibit um paints tolkien as a you know a a, a full a full person uh and, and some of those those things that we might not first think of Tolkien for how, how we can better understand him and his work, uh, through this additional lens. Sarah, do you want to take a crack at that? There's like nine questions there. So answer anyone you like. (laughs) I feel like Bill could actually speak to that a lot better than, than I could. I would think I would be repeating a lot of the things I've already said. Um, particularly, I mean, I will just say that, you know, I, I'm, I don't work at Marquette. I'm, uh, uh, I'm based at, uh, the university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. So I'm across town. Um, but that being the case, and it, it was something that, you know, kind of did come up in our early conversations was, we didn't want to, you know, sideline Tolkien's Catholic identity in part because that's part of Marquette's identity as well. Um, so when there were opportunities to bring in uh, elements that spoke to that or would give opportunity for classes to kind of ruminate on these questions when visiting the exhibition, um, that was something that that was part of our conversations and I think do come through in the exhibition. Um, but I think handing it over to Bill would would be uh, a good move at this point. Yeah, the, there, we, we, we approached this, there, we, we were thinking, what is our audience? And we decided we would kind of spread it wide and try to attract a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. Um, and so, for example, um, it, in addition to the Catholic side of things, which I'll, I'll talk more about in a second, um, Tolkien was a, was a linguist. Um, he was a, a conlanger, which is a slang term nowadays for people who construct their own languages. He created his own languages for his for his legendarium. And so uh, we we selected pieces that that demonstrate that. And there are some things in the exhibition, one in particular I can think of that uh, is, is sort of geared toward a very geeky sub audience of Tolkien fans, the the linguists. Uh, we have um, a, a page of, of uh, what Tolkien called uh, the New English Alphabet. Uh, he decided to create a new alphabet for English, uh, he, uh, and uh, and he used it in his own personal journals, writing his diaries and that sort of thing. And so we have a page of that up, and it's sort of like a Rosetta Stone in some ways for people studying the New English alphabet because there hasn't been a lot of details about it that have been published or made available. And so it provides information that will allow linguists to study and get a better grasp of how the alphabet worked and, and how Tolkien used it. So that's kind of an audience, a, a niche that, that we, we, we geared towards as well. But as Sarah said, as we were going through, 
um, you know, we did select things that highlighted his his Catholic faith. It was very easy to do, I think, because it really does come through a lot in the manuscripts, especially in the things that we chose, that which aren't like the, you know, the formal paintings or you know that are that are tied to one of the published works, but more just the the doodles or the interesting um, um, uh, drawings and sketches he might do of things. Um, which which highlight that. So, for example, going back to that piece I mentioned before, the the Gloria, um, this was a uh, it was it was an interesting insight into to Tolkien. I think in that um, I I think writing something like that out was for him a, sort of a form of prayer um, as he's re, as he's writing it. I think I think he was in in fact praying it to some extent, um, and and probably similar to what a medieval scribe might have felt back you know in the Middle Ages. Where you know they're they're not just clocking in to do a job in the scriptorium, they're they're very active. What they're doing is to them a form of devotion and a form of prayer. So they're they're worshiping and praising God by the very act of creating these manuscripts. And I think that that a little element of that comes in uh, in Tolkien in in that piece, for example. Um, that that's one uh, that, that that's one case. Um, and there's other scattered things as well. There's a there's an interesting piece where he's um, he's writing in a. Uh, 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 in Latin, uh, a, a quote from uh, one of the Psalms. And then, so he starts it in, in uh, Latin, and then he switches to uh, it using one of the invented alphabets, the Tengwar that he created for the Elvish tongues. He finishes the, the, the quote in that. So it's this interesting juxtaposition of a, a script you would see in a medieval manuscript and then something from that looks like it's from the Book of Mazarbul across the across the space, so it's a really interesting melding of, of those of those points of view. Um, so it definitely co comes through in the story. One of the things we put up uh, uh, for the Lord of the Rings section, there's a section of the exhibition where we really focus on him as a world builder because that's one of his great reputations is being able to create this incredibly believable world and uh it comes through certainly in the writing of the lord of the rings where people who read that work are just feel like they're you know that they're entered this world and they can lose themselves in it and, and they, they just feel sad when they have to leave it and so uh one of the things he did to kind of build in that realism was to very carefully chart out all of the um the days of the story um from september you know through um through the destruction of the ring, plotting out each day where different characters were. And it's, it's a time scheme that we laid out almost as a kind of scroll. We have some of them originals in a case, but then we have the complete time scheme in a scroll along the wall. And people can just sort of read through the Lord of the Rings in digest as they're going through the scroll. And, you know, there are things that jump out that um, uh, to someone, uh, to Catholics who kind of know, know the history in the sense that, um, if you look at the at, at the early in the time scheme when the, the Fellowship of the Ring is leaving um, Rivendell, it's December 25th is when they're leaving. To us as Christmas Day is when they're actually departing on this quest. And then if you look at to the end where the towards the end where the ring is destroyed and the down the downfall of Sauron happens, it's on March 25th, which is was a significant date since that was. Um, uh, I think a feast of the Annunciation, but also it was the belief of the Middle Ages that that was the March 25th was the original day of, of Good Friday. So you kind of have this idea of the, the journey of the of the the ring, uh, quest of the ring, kind of starting uh, is sort of encompassed by Christ's life. You know, starting with Christmas and ending with uh, with March 25th with Good Friday. So little things like that come through in in the in the um, to, uh, to perceptive viewers as they're going through the exhibition.
I have a but funny really story. Cool. Sorry, just I have a funny story related to that. Um, so when a, a friend of mine was having a kid and was saying, oh, the due date is, I asked him when the due date was, and he said, uh, uh, March 25th. And I was like, oh, fall of Sauron day. And he was like, also the Annunciation, but yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, both both and, right? I, I think it's so cool how you're describing Bill, and I think it comes through like this, um, that Tolkien's act of, of writing, of creating this world was in so many ways of, of an act of prayer and, and, and kind of how he entered into his understanding of kind of the divine mystery. Um, and it's really, it sounds so cool that you can see that, you know, really experience it uh, kind of by encountering the exhibition. Um, let's let's talk about the ring, Rings of Powers, um, and let's talk about how you guys see um, the exhibition connecting or informing, um, uh, you know, what you assume, which we all assume, uh, the storyline of, of this new show is going to be. Who wants to go first? I'll let you guys jump at that one. Yeah, we've established that I've been tracking the show more closely than than Bill has. Um, I haven't been doing, I haven't done too much of a deep dive into it just because I I like to kind of be immersed in those experiences. So I've I've followed things, but not too deeply. But I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the Rings of Power, I think we'll see, is just it's being built out of a relatively small body of his writings. Um, so it's not coming kind of directly from the body of of the Lord of the Rings or even the Silmarillion. Um, so there's a lot of kind of the, the, the showrunners, the people creating the show, doing the same kind of work that Tolkien himself did. Um, and I don't think fan fiction is a term that necessarily he would embrace, but there is an extent to which he's looking at where there are gaps and holes in in um, medieval and ancient stories and creating ways of filling in those gaps or, or creative ways of, of, um, of, of thinking through what those gaps might have held. And there's an extent to which I think we'll see the Rings of Power kind of doing that as well, filling in gaps where, I mean, if you read the Silmarillion, there are huge, huge events that are described in a sentence, you know, very major things that happen that that affect the entire rest of the course of the Legendarium that you could miss if you're reading too quickly. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see and, and all signs I've gotten from Tolkien experts who have seen the first two episodes already, Tolkien experts who have been kind of following the the development of, of the show, is that the the showrunners are maintaining a, a great level of, of um, consistency with the existing works and that there's a lot of excitement around it. And in, in the exhibition, I think, um, as Bill already mentioned, and as I alluded to, you know, there are is that kind of broader legendarium that's touched on at various points. The heraldry um, at the in the last section is is an element of that. I know Gil Gallet is a, is a major character um, in in the show. Um, also, that last section features things that um, other other kind of decorative works that Tolkien created right around that same time, um, kind of post the publication of Lord of the Rings around the culture of Numenor. So Numenor is kind of um, one of, if not the, the central um, uh, locations that I think will be featured in Rings of Power. So that's another thing that I think viewers coming now to the exhibition or looking at the catalog and watching the show um, will be able to make connections there. Yeah, my, my hope is that um, it will 
draw people to the exhibition. Um, obviously, the more people coming, the better. So I think people that maybe are captivated by the show might want to find out more about about this person and and take a look. And I think, as Sarah said, they will see little things that will ring bells for them. Numenor, um, you know, mentioned in some of the um, the analytic material, you know, the lines of kings and such that we that we display in the exhibition and in the artwork. Um, so I'm, I'm really hopeful there will be there, that there will be a connection between the two. Um, I've honestly, I've, I've been just too busy with the exhibition to to give this sh that that show a lot of a lot of attention. I am happy to hear from what Sarah's saying and and from what I've heard as well that some of the people that that uh, I know who are, are influencers that I know are very um, know quite a bit about Tolkien are are pleased with how it's turning out. Um, so I'll I'll wait and see. I'm 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 interested. I'll I'll approach it with an open mind and, and see how it goes. I mean, certainly there was concern early on in the uh, in the process as this was developing that the Rings of Power was going to be sort of like the taking Tolkien and trying to turn it into a Game of Thrones kind of mold. And I thought, you know, if because they're focusing on the Second Age of Middle Earth, the rise and fall of Numenor. And I mean, if you if you wanted to pick any period in Tolkien's Legendarium where you could completely go to a, a you know a, a fallen debauched civilization uh, th that would be the age to go to so I was a little alarmed that they were really going to kind of go off the rails with their depiction and that you know human sacrifices and all that kind of stuff um, I don't maybe they are to some extent but it sounds like they're they're trying to at least keep it more in, within the spirit of Tolkien and not have it be quite so gratuitous at least that's the sense I have yeah, I think that's what I've uh, what I've what I've read too. So we'll we'll have to wait and see. So let's say people are inspired. They watch the Rings of Power. They need to get to Marquette and they wanna they wanna see the exhibition. Give us the details. When when how how long is the exhibition running for? What do people need to know uh, if they get to, if they get to town? So it's uh, on view now, and it will be on view every day. Um, the Haggerty Museum of Art, which is where the exhibition is mounted at Marquette's campus, it's open every day. Um, and it will be up until December 23rd. Uh, you, so the, the, it is a ticketed exhibition. Um, and there are, uh, it, it's, so it's $10 a person, but there are discounted rates. Um, and uh, there are time slots. So when you buy a ticket, you'll buy it for a particular time slot. All of this information is on the Haggerty Museum of Arts website. So, um, and there's a, there's a whole FAQ page about the exhibition and, and the catalog and things like that. So if there are any questions, I would say go to that resource. Um, and one thing that uh, I, I would just like to add is kind of a final pitch if anybody is thinking, well, maybe I should, go and go to Milwaukee and see this, but I'm not sure. Um, I mean, Bill and I and um, some of the folks at the Bodleian who came out to um, assist with the with the installation, we're talking about the fact that this is probably the last time in quite a while that many of these things will be on public view. So as Bill mentioned, this is um, this exhibition is following up on on three major exhibitions uh, in just the past three, four years. And many of these works, you know, these were not finished artworks that a lot of them that were, that have been preserved and that you can have on continual view. They're on degraded, thin pieces of paper. In many cases, there's writing on both sides. So um, 
for for that reason alone, uh, you know, they they can't be exhibited that often. Um, and if you're coming to even if you're coming to Marquette to do research on on Tolkien's manuscripts, you're not going to be looking at the originals. And again, this is something Bill can talk about, but uh, you look at them in reproduction. Um, for a long time, it was either microfilm or photocopy. Now it's this new system that that Bill has spearheaded. That you're looking at digital surrogates, and it's a I, you know I Bill kind of previewed it for me, and it looks fantastic, and it'll I think it'll really like from my perspective, revolutionize the study of these of these manuscripts, but it's still, it's not the same as looking at them in their original form. And if that's something that sparks your interest at all, I would just say, you know, even if you're not into the manuscript lens of it, just seeing these things in person, like, and just uh, we'll call out one item that I think is really special for a lot of people and Bill described as the most, Bill, I've heard him describe as the most relic-like of any object in the exhibition, which is one where you actually see Tolkien's tear stains on the piece of paper. So if that's the kind of thing that you're like, that will push you over the edge to like get to Milwaukee and see this, I would say, you know, if nothing else, you probably won't have another chance in, it, you know, the foreseeable future, maybe a couple decades. Oof. Nothing like a little urgency. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I definitely concur with everything that Sarah just said. Um, if you if you can make it, it's definitely worth going. It, it it'll be a while before an opportunity to, like this comes again. I think. Um, and if you're if people are unable to come, though, I just want to go back to something Sarah mentioned briefly, and that's the catalog that we've prepared that goes along with this. And it's a beautiful book. It's it reproduces the entire object list in color. So we'll give people a chance. There's no substitute for seeing the original, but it does give people a chance to um, to see what we what we put on display and how we've how we've organized the exhibition and some of the ideas and themes that that we've tried to highlight running through the exhibition. And uh, we've gotten a lot of a lot of great feedback. I mean, just this morning we got an email from maybe the best greatest Tolkien scholar ever saying that that she absolutely loved the book and, and read it cover to cover when she got it. So um, that is also available through uh, the Hegarty website as well if people aren't, aren't able to to it, be here in person. Cool. Good to know. Well, we'll drop some links in the uh, the show notes here so people can uh, can learn about the ex exhibition and and can uh, uh, book their tickets to, to get to Milwaukee because it sounds like that's what they need to be doing right now. Sarah, Bill, thank you so much for joining us on AMDG and congratulations on this really, really exciting project. Thank, thank you. you. Nice talking to you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C., and occasionally in my basement. This episode was edited by me, Eric Clayton. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference Communications team is Mike Jordan Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Megan Leapsch, Beggy Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits at jesuits.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about becoming a Jesuit or Jesuit life in general, connect with your local vocations promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And as St. Ignatius may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.